Welcome to 2045 and our Friday talks. Today we have a special guest, Ken Homer. So we're looking to co-discover a vision for the future for 2045. In a minute, I'll go over what our vision is, but first I'd like to start with a little bit about Ken Homer. Ken, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, you didn't tell, that wasn't on the question list. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Ken Homer. I live in Santa Fe, California. Um, I'm an organizational development uh, practitioner, and um, I often describe myself as a, a smart ass with a search engine. I'm interested in a lot of things. I spent a decade of my life as one of the core developers of the World Cafe process, so I've been very interested in conversation. Also trained as an integral coach, and I started to ask myself, um, why is it that so many projects fail to come in on time and on budget? Why do so many... Um, people feel disengaged at work? And why do so many mergers and acquisitions fail? And I don't think it's because people are poorly resourced or have bad intentions. I think it's because they're missing certain conversational competencies. So I started to ask myself, is there a minimum set of conversations that can allow a group or an organization or team to take a project from conception through to completion? And if so, what are they? And I've discovered there's actually four conversations that, that need to happen in fairly, fairly good order to make that happen. And I've been teaching that to people now for over 10 years. Um, the conversations are not hard to, to engage, although sometimes they do deal with difficult subject matter. I'm also very concerned about the future. Um, I think that we're at a unique time in human history where the decisions and actions we take today have implications far, far out into the future. And I'm trying to do my best to be a good ancestor to the people who will come after me. That's awesome, thank you. So. I'll tell you a little bit about our emerging vision. And that's what we're trying to do here is to emerge a new vision from all the folks that come and join us in these conversations, in these Friday talks. And what we've been trying to do is build some kind of map. And that's still a work in progress, but build a map of all of these visions and how these visions come together to create a broader vision for 2045. At the moment, our vision is uh, emerging and it, it speaks to the idea that society has shifted away from an abstract social structure and towards human paradigm. Um, that's what we see for 2045, that we have a way of living, working and organizing that is built on relationships rather than procedures. And that the society is prioritizes positive impact above scale and growth which is in part what we were just talking about a minute ago. So does that vision to you, at least in part, resonate? And it's certainly broad enough uh, to speak to the work that you've just described that you do. Absolutely. A few years ago, after Ferguson, uh, a colleague, two colleagues of mine and I got together, we're all um, facilitators and we thought, let's put together a program that can help people. We're skilled, we should be able to do this in six weeks. Well, it took nine months um, and there was an awful lot of tears. Um, my, my colleague, Diane, who is a, uh, is a black woman, um, she did an enormous amount of research on uh, slavery, the history of slavery. And we identified um, the root of the problem as dehumanization. As soon as you dehumanize somebody, then you're able to do really horrible things to them. And I actually had the, the privilege of being at a, con a conference in 2006 on Bali 
where I got to be in a small group with Desmond Tutu. And uh, he's an incredible human being. And he actually got up and, and preached kind of a sermon. And um, he said, you know, when we put together truth and reconciliation, Mandela and I received death threats. There were people who were saying, you cannot let these people off. They're monsters. He said, and therein lies the problem. As soon as you call someone else a monster, you absolve them of human responsibility and you can become a monster yourself. So this idea of rehumanizing lies at the heart of my work. Um, when I work in organizations, I really try to make it about how can we make organizations work for human beings, not for profit, not for machines, not for computers, but for the people who are there. Because that's, you know, we're all there is. You know, once we're gone, there, there is no more society. So if we don't have humanity and humanization at the center and not dehumanizing others, I think we're doomed to fail. Well, it sounds like you've answered my, my next question, which was going to be, what's your vision for 2025? <laughs> but, but maybe it's, it's, you can expand on that a little bit. Well, you know, I, was, I, I got your questions advanced and I was writing out my answers to them. And I thought, it's such a hard question because we're in the midst of so much turmoil right now that it's hard to see. Um, so what I like is that the timeline is, you know, 24 years out, because then I can let go of the immediate stuff that's in my field of vision and focus on the long term. And um, I, I'll share something that, that happened to me many years ago. Um, right after my 50th birthday, I went into a, an incredible depression. I'd never dealt with depression at this level before. Um, and I just felt like, I don't know who I am, what I'm doing. And I was depressed for a full year. Um, people were worried about, I lost 45 pounds. Um, I wasn't eating. People thought I had, you know, some illness, wasting disease. And um, my wife was concerned. I wasn't actively suicidal, but I often went to bed wishing that I wouldn't wake up the next day. Just please let it be over. And the day after my 51st birthday, I, was, I opened my eyes and this little voice in my head said, what if I'm actually enough? And I was like, what? Say that again. And of course it was gone. And that initiated a shift of, I had been so caught up in looking at the disasters going on in the world that I felt overwhelmed and incapable of coping with them. And it made me horrifically depressed. And I'm one person. What can I do in a world where there's so much going on? And this little something inside said, what if I'm enough? Clued me into, I have to believe I'm enough. I have to believe that whatever I do will make a difference if I'm, if I'm working on it. You know, if I let things go and just say, I'm just gonna you know, drink wine and live the good life, then that's something different. But I'm, I'm actively trying to leave the world a bit better for having passed through it. And I think that's something that collectively we also need to recognize the question of what if we're enough? What if we actually have the ability to, to handle the challenges in front of us? Um, if we don't have that, then those challenges become insoluble and overwhelming and truly existentially frightening. They're already all of those things, but um, if we believe we're enough, then, then we have within us the ability to get together and work on them with the, the hope and the faith that it will turn out, no matter how it turns out, it will turn out all right. You know, Václav Havel said, um, it's hope or faith is, is not believing in something right, but believing that it will turn out okay, no matter what happens. So that's my orientation around this. You, uh, that orientation kind of points to the idea that 
it's all of us individually that have to come to that realization in order to be able to get to the point where we can come together. And, and the work you do is about coming together. It is. Um, so what does that work specifically, how does it relate to, to a vision for 2045, the work that you're doing? What, what part of the vision changes by your work? Well, when I was younger, I was filled with a lot of fire and anger, you know. Uh, I, I began my um, ecological awareness in 1987 when I read Buckminster Fuller's Critical Path. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, there's so much destruction happening on the planet. People have to wake up. And I, I, would, I would preach. And my wife said, you know, Ken, when you see their eyes roll up in their head and they're foaming at the mouth, stop talking. Um, it took me a while to, to actually get past that. You have to, you know, and um, as a somatic coach, one of the things I, I recognize is whenever I find myself in a certain posture with the words of we must, I take a breath and go, okay, I'm preaching. No one's going to listen to me preach. So uh, what I, what I came to a few years ago is my work focuses on collaboration. And it's really interesting how often um, people call me for conflict resolution rather than collaboration, which they kind of go hand in hand, but I try to focus on the collaboration part, right? And um, I think what we really need to do is recognize, or what I, what I came to recognize is that if I can help someone learn to collaborate with that person across the aisle that they don't necessarily like, but they respect because they see they have competence and they're working towards something you know, important, and then they wake up for themselves and say, I want to make a difference in the world. They'll have a tool that they've gotten that they can then take out to community organizing or, you know, whatever it is they want to do. So I'm not trying to wake people up and change them anymore. I'm just trying to help them get through their days and um, recognize that it's possible to work together with people in ways that can be really fulfilling um, even when you don't necessarily like them, as long as there's a mutual trust and respect going on. It's not about everybody has to like each other. You just have to recognize that everybody has a legitimate point of view. Sometimes they have things that are valid uh, to contribute, and sometimes they don't. But no one gets excluded simply because of who they are, the way they look, the way they act, or what they say. Everybody's invited to the conversation, and we listen for the points of, of commonality and overlap. And that's the place we start from. So how would collaboration be in, in 24 years versus the way it is today? If, if the work you're doing gets to a point where a large percentage of the Earth's population is actually collaborating rather than not, mm -hmm. what, what's the difference? What's the, what's the vision of how that manifests? You ask tough questions, Jose. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that will be different is, is right now uh, there's a revolution going on in technology. You know, we've got um, all these sensors, all of these, these uh, wearable technologies. Um, people are kind of becoming cyborgs, you know, um, take, Google uh, Glass or whatever it was where, you know, it was the glasses and, you know, kind of like you're, we're going to have a lot more access to um, appliances that will help us think together. And so MIT has a center for the study of collective intelligence and their 
idea around collective intelligence is connecting people and computers in ways that allow them to be smarter than they would be on their own. So I think one of the things that's going to happen is uh, more and more people recognize the need to collaborate simply because they're waking up to how bad things are. You know, this summer has and last summer are kind of blowing the the the, uh, the doors off all the climate deniers. You really can't deny that climate change is happening anymore as we watch things burn, as we watch things in drought, as we watch floods, you know. Um, so more and more people are saying, hey, we've got to change. And um, as we come together and recognize, I think the, the, the fundamental uh, core piece here is we're all in this together. You're not going to escape this by being a billionaire and hiding behind a, you know, a gated community on a thousand acres of land with a, with a bunch of, with a whole Costco warehouse at your disposal for food. It, it's going to hit everybody. So the idea that we're all in this together and that it's got to work for everybody is one of the things that I hope will be part of the future in 2045, that it will no longer be um, a bunch of countries fighting over who gets to steer the planet because there is no steering the planet. The planet steers itself and we either go along or we take it apart in the process. Um, so I'm seeing, a, a, coming back to that, we are enough, um, that not only we are enough, we recognize that we're all there is. And so we better work together or it isn't going to happen. I really love that because that's, that's a beautiful concept. The fact that the earth is, is doing its own thing. We just got to play along with it rather than think that we're leading it. Um, I, I love that picture. Thank you for that. that. That's a beautiful part of the vision, I think, is that recognition right there. Um, something that certainly I don't think we've um, expressed before. So there you go. You've done your work. Oh, yeah, okay. You go now. Right. You go now. We've got you. <laughs> well, let me add something to that. Um, I've always been uncomfortable with the term biomimicry because we're biological organisms ourselves. And it seems to me that if we can recover and remember some of our ancient past, which is still carried very much alive today by indigenous cultures, um, the Aboriginals in Australia, anthropologists have studied their stories and they still tell stories about um, uh, life forms that went extinct 40,000 years ago. They're still in their story. So that means these people have an intact culture of 40,000 years. I would say there's a vast storehouse of how to get along with each other and how to get along with the planet living within its bounds um, that's the locked up there, that is not being spread around and, and fertilizing our, our consciousness. So, sure. so people who come from an indigenous background, whether it's Australia or Africa or South America or North America or, or, or Lapland in Europe, you know, Siberia, they're much more... Um, likely to be attuned to the earth because they live close to it. We've got a culture that um, makes decisions a hundred stories off the ground. So they're ungrounded um, thousands of miles away from the consequences. And um, I think that's one, there's no feedback loop that lets people know when you make this decision, here's how it lands over there. So we've got to connect the feedback loops. And there are very definite feedback loops between the human body and the earth itself that um, if we start to uh, get into our somatic awareness, will guide us in um, moving forward in a healthy way. No, that's beautiful. Because I also think it's not just the feedback loops, but it's the causal uh, chains. Because as human beings, we lose track of what our effect, what 
what our behavior causes and the effects of those causes. Uh, and we don't see them, right? It's okay to burn fuel. Uh, and I don't see the people around the community that was damaged by that or the pollution that was created by that and so forth. So a lot of it is, is that both the causal um, effects as well as that feedback. So I, I like that, uh, the way you put that. So what do you think are the obstacles to to that vision of, of people recognizing that it is about us getting out of the way of the earth rather than uh, thinking that we're running the earth? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them. I would say one of the most pressing is that we're now in um, what's known as VUCA territory, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And most people, and especially a lot of leaders, are not prepared for that. They're still using 18th, 19th, 20th century uh, leadership uh, styles. And so they're looking for certainty, you know. Um, I alone can fix it. I have the answer. And so the rise of authoritarianism is extremely concerning right now. And it gains uh, foothold in times of great complexity and ambiguity because people are not comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's like, okay, this isn't working. Tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? So um, one of the obstacles is developing the collective capacity to sit with great uncertainty and great fear um, and not move too soon. You know, we, we can't afford to be paralyzed by analysis, neither can we afford to leap too quickly. So we've got to float in that space between trapezes where you let go of one and you're falling and you're waiting for the next handle to come along or hoping there's a net underneath you or that you're suddenly going to sprout wings, right? And um, that's not something that's very well developed at a large scale. And at the same time, I think it's something that's easily developed at a large scale because so much of what's going on uh, that's positive in the world is not reported in the news. It's happening at the margins. It doesn't make the papers. It doesn't make the, the news um, channels. It doesn't, it might show up on some of your social media, depending upon what you're tuned into, but there's, there's ample evidence of people who are, are doing amazing work. And I think of the fall of the Berlin Wall and how all the pundits said, wow, nobody saw that coming. But I know people who are involved in um, U.S. Soviet citizen diplomacy who said, we totally saw this coming. We were talking to people on the ground. They're like this, you know, the whole thing's falling apart. You just can't see it yet. And one day it's very brittle. There's, there's going to be that tap of the hammer. It's just going to all right. shoot right? So I think that's, that's something that's, that's there. The tipping point. We have multiple tipping points. And the question is, which way is it tipping? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. So because we are about talking to different individuals and different communities and, and different movements, um, part of what we try to do is, is to reflect on what else is um, near you from the type of work that you do as far as uh, adjacent movements or adjacent, adjacent work that is being done that, um, that complements and connects to the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Any specific things come to mind? Um, first thing that comes to mind is permaculture and regenerative agriculture. Uh, I'm not a permaculturist myself, um, but I love what these movements are doing. Um, you know, it, food security is certainly going to be at the heart of any future. If we don't have food security, it, we're going to have horrific, you know, um, disparities in, in society, there's going to be wars, there's going to be all kinds of, of trouble. So we've got to make sure everybody has enough to eat. 
Oh, likewise, um, the ecological movement. We have to make sure that our ecosystems, which are not natural resources, but our life support, life support systems are all in the red at, this, at the moment. So this is one of the things driving the positive change. More and more people are waking up and saying, we have to restore the soil's capacity to grow seeds and grow food. I think the report out of England is they have less than 50 harvests left. That's pretty scary, you know? But if you look at something like Biggest Little Farm or Joel Salatin's work at Polyface Farms, Salatin doesn't say that he grows food, he grows soil. You know, they're learning how to restore soil. So the restoration of soil and regenerative agriculture, including properly managed ruminants, which build up all kinds of roots and in, in the soil and grasses, which then allow people to not have to make the choice between meat and, and being, you know, a vegetarian. If, I don't do well on vegetarian diet. I've tried it. it. My body gets really depleted really fast. I need some meat. I don't eat a huge amount, but I need it. And I don't want to be told you can't have meat. So that's one. Uh, Social justice. Right now I'm, I'm facilitating a series. I'm part of a facilitation team for a large uh, global financial services firm that is looking at diversity, equity, equity and inclusion. Um, it's really heartening to me to see how many businesses are recognizing. And again, it goes to profit because it's the studies show that diverse teams outperform homogenous teams. They always, they have better ideas, they're, they're higher performing. So there is a profit margin, profit motive there. But at the same time, if that's what drives the change and you get the change in place, fantastic. So I don't like DEI as a term. I think it tends to be divisive, but I really like this, this uh, alternate, which is dignity, justice, and belonging. So are we creating an organization or a community where everyone has dignity, where everyone feels that they can belong, where everyone is treated with equal justice? Um, equal justice is different than equality, right? So that's growing at, by leaps and bounds, and it's really positive because that goes to the humanization, right? Um, somebody mentioned on a call the other day, we're a financial services firm. We have a lot of analysts. We're hiring a neurotypical people, you know, who are on the spectrum. They lack a lot of social skills. And we want to make sure that we build the kind of the culture that welcomes them and doesn't exclude them because they lack certain skills, but honors other skills. So the fact that this is going on in a, in a, in a financial services firm is really encouraging to me. Um, so social justice, restorative agriculture, the ecological movement, um, those are the, the, the first ones that pop into my head. Quite consistent, obviously, uh, in being able to bring about the type of mindset that you talked about, right? Because mm -hmm. it is about the earth first yeah. and nature first and not secondary to that. And so that makes a, a lot of sense. So we're about to wrap up here. Any other thoughts? Uh, anything else that you think? Um, you'd like to expand on uh, as far as uh, a yeah, vision for 2045? There is one. Um, this has been a, a topic, a very hot topic for me the last couple of weeks, talking with different, different people. Um, don't ask the question, how do we do this? I think that's the wrong question. And I'll, I'll explain why. How do we do this activates an engineering problem solving mindset. And we're not faced with engineering challenges. I mean, we are, but we've got most of the engineering challenges handled. Right now, we could feed everybody, we could shelter everybody. Those are technical challenges and, and we have the ability to do that. What we're faced with are adaptive challenges, um, which require a change in mindset. And um, the, the knowledge is not there. We have to invent new ways of being. We're faced with wicked messes or, or wicked problems, or as Bob Johansson just calls them, dilemmas, right? And um, 
if you ask, how do we solve this? You're asking the wrong question because that's through the lens of it's a problem to be solved. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a situation we're invite, engaged in. So what I invite people to do is um, bring as many voices from the system, all the stakeholders you can get into the room and say, what's important? Identify what's important and what's important now, what's important going forward. So if looking at society 25, 2045, what type of um, society are we envisioning? Listen to all that, map it out, get it captured, right? And then say, what kinds of systems would ensure that all of those concerns, all those needs, um, all those desires are met? And then once you've engaged imagination and looked at the systemic viewpoint of it, then ask the question, how do we transform existing systems and what new systems need to be put in place in order to support that vision? So Einstein said, you, you know, imagination is more important than knowledge. So we want to first engage our imagination um, and dream really big. When I work with people, uh, when I first interview them, I say, you can ask for the moon, right? And we're going to steer by the stars. When we actually get in the room, we have to go with the wind and the currents and the tides. So, but by, if you don't dream big enough, you don't have a big enough vision, you're not going to have enough lift to achieve where you need to go. So aim really high and don't worry that it's unreasonable. It should, imagination should be unreasonable. And then we'll work on, on the engineering part of that after we've done the, the imagination part. So ask, what would it look like if it was working instead of how do we get there or how do we make it work? So I'm gonna leave it there because I've had enough of my questions. Uh, and, uh, and it looks like uh, Kim's got a question for you right away. I wanna go back to in the beginning when you were introducing yourself, you said you had uh, convers four conversational competencies and I don't think I heard you say what those were. Oh, okay. And so I, I wrote down one, two, three, four in my notes. So um, I wanna fill those in. <laughs> so they're, they're all verbs. So the first one is, um, sharing understanding. So we come together, let's say, you know, the, the five of us on this call want to talk about uh, vision 2045, right? So why are we here? What's important? What are we looking to create? What's the outcome we want? And the humanizing side of this is to then say, and Kim, what do you bring to this? And what do you want to put into it? And what do you get out of it? What are your skills? What are your talents? What are your gifts? You know, and what's your passion? What's really, what really would make this juicy for you, right? Um, so that, that conversation, and as we go around and listen, we'll hear people say things that we go, oh, I really resonate with that. And we'll hear them say things like, mm, not so much, doesn't really grab me. But if we make note of all the things that, that we resonate with, and the, collectively we say, so out of here, we have seven points that we all agree on that are really important. That's the common ground from which to begin your exploration of, of how to make things happen. And so the second conversation is exploring possibilities. Um, I use improv a lot. Uh, there's a wonderful improv game called planning a five-year-old's birthday party. And we start with yes, but. So if I say we're gonna plan a five-year-old's birthday party and I say, okay, we can have it at the zoo. The first yes, but is yes, but the zoos can be dangerous, right? And after two or three rounds, no one wants to plan the party anymore because it's a real drag. So if instead, and we can do anything we want and suspend the laws of physics, then you get, sure, we can, we can you know, have the kids, um, you know, playing the, in, the, in the cage of the gorillas and petting the tigers and, you know, it gets really exciting. We invite people into a conversation about how would how could we go about 
producing the end result in a way that would be really fun and exciting and fulfilling for people that would let everybody feel they, they were full participants. Now that'll generate some unreasonable things, but it also generates some very reasonable things. You get this cloud of possibilities. And, and so then you say now, based on the fact that we have laws of physics and we have budgets and we have resource constraints, which one of these things would um, stand the best chance of success? And this is key. Everyone has to agree, we think this one, and even though it's not my favorite one, I will support it. Because if yours doesn't get picked and you're like, well, I'm not going to work on it because it's not mine, you're going to drag the whole team down. So everybody has to say, all right, I agree. I'll, I will put my best effort into this. And then we move into the conversation that everyone knows from business school of coordinating actions. What are the goals? What are the timelines? What are the milestones? You know, what's the critical path? Who's responsible for what tasks? Um, how do we divvy up resources? Uh, blah, blah, blah. And then again, the humanizing part. Kim, what does it look like when you're really stressed? What happens when um, you know, you've got multiple deadlines that are slipping and you have a bad day at home and you know, you're not feeling well? So that if I notice that, I come up and say, Kim, you look like you're really struggling. How can I help you? Let's take a walk. You know, you're, just, you're not going to get through this by bowling through. So let's take a little break. Talk to me about it. We'll come back. You'll see things differently. So we're really supporting each other, bringing out the best in each other. The other critical part here is in the uh, in the Jewish tradition, there's this saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans, right? So we come up with a plan. Tell it to God. How's God going to laugh at this plan? Where are the potential breakdowns? So we're planning ahead, right? Okay, here's the, here's the laughing part. We got to, what are we going to do if God laughs at us right here? And you're thinking things through. The last conversation, which almost never gets held, is the reflecting and learning or the after action review. What did we do that worked well? What can be replicated? Who needs to be acknowledged? And the answer is always everybody. Don't just acknowledge the high performers. Make sure everybody gets acknowledged for what they contributed. What did we do that didn't work the way we thought it would? Not that failed, because failure has a big emotional you know, component to it. So it's like, what do we do that, that didn't work that we, the way we thought it would? We thought by doing this, we'd end up over here. Instead, we ended up way over there. What did that teach us? And how can we use that going forward? And then what competencies did we develop individually and collectively? And if we are working together again on a future project, um, how can we use those to be even better next time? And if we're dividing up and going to new teams, what am I bringing with me that I can gift the next team with? And that's plotted around a, a wheel and it works backwards. So if you're in coordinating actions and people say, ah, you know, this isn't working, go back and see, did you choose the right possibility? If you didn't choose it, did you generate it? If you didn't generate it, go back. Did you actually have enough overlap and, and agreement on what was important? So it's a really simple model. As I was developing it, I was looking for something that would be portable and easy to remember because I read Difficult Conversations, which has 13 steps, and I can't remember 13 steps. You know, I've got a, a small brain. And um, so it's just, it, it's been a great guiding um, model. And it's also kind of fractal because at the end of each conversation, you will say, okay, so what are our next steps here? What do we learn, right? You can reflect on every single conversation. So that's the, that's, that's the model in a nutshell. Matt, it, uh, you unmuted. It looked like you might have a question. Oh, the question, um, I think you don't like the idea of how do we do this? So how do we get people to go from um, this, all these judgmental things, I don't like the guy, and 
you know, he's, he's dressed funny, uh, he's behaving funny or whatever, to, um, okay, somebody that I can collaborate with. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that um, for anything going to the future, collaboration is key. And, and the ability to collaborate is key. And, and the, um, I don't know, the, the reactions, you know, the way that people react and behave around conflict and stuff like that is, is to look forward to, okay, but how can we, what can we do together, right? But that's not what we learn in school. In fact, it's the opposite, right? Is you do your tasks and you block the other guys from cheating. And um, that's not we do it uh, at home. You know, who broke the lamp or whatever? And it's not, not me, not me. And it's only two siblings, <laughs> so not me. And um, and definitely we don't, we don't find that at work, right? At work is, uh, is the, who's, who's the fault for this? Who, uh, who's the big guy who made this happen? Uh, the other 27 people don't count. Who's the big guy who made this happen? Um, so how do you change that? How, what are the steps to change that? Because this, that's one of the things that we've been struggling with is, yeah, that's where we need to go, but holy shit, it's going to be hard. Yeah, sure. A um, couple things come to mind. One, it is hard. There's no question that it's hard, but, but we shouldn't shy away from the hard stuff. Um, two, David Cooper writer um, out of Case Western Reserve University invented or developed something called appreciative inquiry. And he said, you know, if you walk into an organization and ask what's wrong and who's to blame, you put people in a defensive crouch. And it's really difficult to learn when you're trying to defend yourself. You know, I can't be the person who's guilty. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can. And so make sure that no one looks at me that way. Right. So if you ask instead, change the question, change the question to what's important and who cares. And you get really different behaviors. And I'll give you an example. Um, many years ago, around 2004, I was invited to um, facilitate a World Cafe uh, at the Foundation for Global Community, which you see beyond war. And they were bringing together business people and peace activists. And um, I knew that it was a very volatile crowd. Uh, in fact, when I introduced my graphic recorder and said, this is Jennifer, she's going to capture today's output, I was immediately told, capture is war language, you can't use that. Um, so I just said, well, what would you suggest instead, you know, being non-defensive? And um, uh, so what I had people do is I, I, I asked them, they're all tables of four, and I said, I'm going to ask you to tell a story. Please tell the story of the first time that you realized that peace was important to you. And nearly everyone went back to a time when they were a teenager, because that's when you tend to be very idealistic in life. And they all had deeply moving stories about how peace became something that was a, a driver in their life. And after two rounds of that, there were no longer peace activists and business people in the room. There were people concerned with peace who had different perspectives on how to get there. And so there was instantly a bonding, because no one can make you wrong for how you came to believe that peace was important. That's a personal story. It's not an opinion, right? And um, there was a bonding, and there was respect, and there was instant trust. So there are ways to move people out of stuck places, but it requires some skillful facilitation. And I really believe that if you give people good tools and good facilitation and ask them appreciative questions, they will never let you down. They'll surprise the hell out of you every time. And you'll find yourself in wonder of, it's amazing what people can do when, they're, when they really think about what's important. 
I, I think we've got to wrap it up here. Okay. Thank you so much, Ken. Well, thank um, you. It was uh, wonderful hearing you and, and uh, learning as much as we did from what you had to say today. Mm -hmm.